You are listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science, coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H. Hello, and welcome to This World of Humans. I'm your host, Nathan Lentz. Your producer is Sam Anderson, and we are back. It's been a long hiatus and a great summer, but we're excited to be back in the studio to launch our second season. I want to personally thank all of you for your support of the podcast uh, for the, during the first season. The fact that we attracted such a loyal following during our first season helped us convince our funders to support us for a second season. So thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and of course, for tweeting about us and telling all your friends to check us out. Uh, and speaking of our funders, I want to take this minute to thank the PSC CUNY Research Award Program for funding this second season. We have some exciting episodes coming up, and it's all thanks to their support and the continued support of Vision Learning and the John Jay College Podcast Studio for hosting us. Okay, enough housekeeping there. Let's jump into today's topic. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, today we're going to talk about a new computational approach that researchers are working on to study human attraction and mate choice. A computational approach. So what do computers have to do with human attraction? (laughs) Well, the idea here is that, as we all know, attraction is really complicated. There's lots of different variables uh, that are sort of in this equation of why we are attracted to some people and not others. Um, So the scientist that we're going to talk to today is working on figuring out how all these variables combine in our minds when we are attracted to someone. Uh, Now, this work is in the field called evolutionary psychology, which is the branch of psychology that uses the lens of our evolutionary past as a way to try to understand human behavior. The idea is that our minds uh, and our behavior were shaped sort of the same way that, um, that our bodies were, which is by evolution and adaptation. And um, if we want to make better sense of our behaviors, uh, it, it's important to think of them as, as they acted in our deep past uh, in terms of whether they were adaptive and helpful and, and how they helped us survive and thrive. Now, to be sure, the field of ev- educational, excuse me, the field of evolutionary psychology is often very controversial, in part because it attempts to explain some of our most intimate behaviors. Um, Its critics often say that it makes very grand and and poorly supported claims, and even that it is used to defend the status quo of various power structures of race and gender, uh, violence even. Uh, And we're not going to wade into most of these controversial aspects of evolutionary psychology today, but we are going to tackle a pretty sensitive subject, and that's attraction and mate choice. Um, And I think, first of all, you have to think about um, what what makes someone attracted? And, and most of these are not really surprising to anyone. They're things like kindness, intelligence, dependability, emotional stability, healthiness, and then, of course, physical attractive, physical beauty as well, which seems to matter more to, to men uh, than to women, um, but also social status, financial prospects. These are all part of what attracts someone to someone else. Um, and, and this does get complicated, and we, we often wonder how much culturally shaped values are, are are uh, affected by this. But the, the point is, is that that's what the field is all about, is trying to sort out the cultural uh, imprint on attraction as well as uh, what's biologically ingrained. Um, so the study we're going to talk about today is really attempting to look at these va- all these different components, these different variables, and figure out um, how the mind makes sense of them all and what value it puts on the different components and um, you know, for example, does it all just sort of add up? Each each component is of equal weight and it adds up, or are some more important than others? Or maybe is there is it a linear relationship when it comes to say physical beauty or whatever? Or is there like a minimum threshold that must be met? Are men the same as women? Are our brains just big computers? These are all the questions 
of evolutionary psychology. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's a good time to bring in our guest to help us make sense of all this complicated picture. Joining us today is Dr. Daniel Conroy Beam from the University of California at Santa Barbara. Welcome, Professor, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right, you bet. Now, you recently published a paper entitled Euclidean Distances Discriminatively Predict Short-Term and Long-Term Attraction to Potential Mates. And this paper was in the Journal of Evolution and Human Behavior. Now, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in that title, but I'm guessing from the first two words, Euclidean distances, you're going to tell us that this relationship between different variables of attraction are not linear. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a big part of the conclusion. Not linear. Uh, okay, so before we talk about the linearity or not of these factors, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in, this, in the field of attraction. I mean, as a budding psychologist, what, what made you decide to enter this field? Because I know you've worked on this with David Buss at University of Texas for some time. What got you interested in the field of attraction psychology? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, part of the answer is uh, attraction is just a naturally kind of interesting topic, right? Who doesn't want to know more about, you know, what makes you fall in love uh, with this person rather than that person? Uh, but, you know, more more seriously, it, it, it interests me as a psychologist because if you think about it, Mate choice is probably the most important decision that you will make in your lifetime, right? I mean, who who you choose as your partner, this determines, you know, where you live, or you know, who you live with, what kind of job you work, who you start a family with. I mean, there's there's no part of your life that isn't affected by this decision. So, you know, it's kind of an important decision to want to understand. Yeah, I, I would say that it is one of the most important decisions we make of who we're going to settle down with. Um, and, and it's interesting that you talk about short-term versus long-term attraction. What do you mean in the context of this paper anyway? Sure, yeah. This is a, a kind of classic distinction that people talk about when they when they study attraction and mate choice. So usually, you know, humans are, are relatively unique in that we have a, a kind of wide array of mating strategies, right? So some of our relationships are what we call long-term relationships. These are your committed romantic relationships. You know, the iconic form of this is marriage, right? We get together with one person and we stay with them sometimes for our entire lives. And that's one kind of human mating. And that's, you know, a universal form of human mating. People do that in every society. But another kind of human mating is on the other end of the spectrum is what we call short-term mating. And this is, you know, your canonical, uncommitted, sexual, you know, the one night stand is the prototypical example mm -hmm. of short-term mating. Uh, and, you know, we think these things exist on a spectrum. Spectrum, right? There are things in the middle. Maybe there's the friends with benefits relationship, which is like a little bit more sexual, but maybe a little bit less committed than a, a romantic partnership. Uh, but usually we focus on kind of the extremes of the spectrum, the, the one night stand versus the romantic relationship kind of thing. And before we talk about this paper, has your work or the work of others in your field um, reinforced or weakened the notion that men and women have different values when it comes to short and long-term mating? Well, I think, you know, the, the most important thing to stress is that, you know, all humans have a psychology of both long-term and short-term mating, right? So, you know, I think people tend to oversimplify and say men want to short-term mate and women want to long-term mate. But if you think about this evolutionarily, right, that, that couldn't even make sense, right? Because men 
heterosexual men at least can't short-term mate unless there's women interested in short-term mating with them, right? So both men and women have a psychology of short-term mating and a psychology of long-term mating. But that doesn't mean that men and women have equal feelings about both kinds of relationships, right? So there is a lot of work showing across cultures men on average tend to be more interested in short-term mating than women, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that men are always interested in short-term mating. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of both. And and is what they're looking for in short-term versus long-term mates, it, do you find that there's a big difference there in, in, in the research? Yeah, yeah. So preferences tend to differ between men and women, and they also, within men and women, tend to differ between short and long-term mating. How so? Uh, so we do see... So, uh, for example, uh, men on average emphasize physical attractiveness more than women do, uh, and also men particularly emphasize physical attractiveness within short-term mating. Okay, so short-term mating would be when physical attraction is the most important, at least to men? Correct. Okay. And it's even more important than men to men than it is to women in the short term. Correct. But in long term, it's less to both, but it's still more important to men than women. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so when you were doing this particular study, you're going to explore various um, features, right? Of, yeah. Of attraction. Yeah. And um, where, first of all, who are you studying? Who, who are your subjects in this study? Uh, so this particular study was two studies. Uh, both of them were American internet samples. So, so these are just know, random folks on the internet in America, in the U.S.? Yep, yep. Uh, Recruited from Amazon Mechanical Turk, not the most representative sample in the world, but, uh-huh. you know, average age, about 30, typical American internet user. Yeah. Okay. And they're doing surveys then. They're answering questions. Correct. And tell us yeah. about that survey. Sure. So what we do is, uh, the first thing we do is we give them a, a standardized uh, ideal mate preference questionnaire. So this just gives you 20 traits. Uh, and we say, you know, each of these are things that a person can have. Uh, think about your ideal committed romantic partner. Uh, how much of each of these traits should they have? And the traits, you know, they kind of run the gamut. I mean, there's physical attractiveness, but there's also, you know, health, intelligence, kindness, dependability, a, a lot of the things you mentioned earlier. Uh, so people just, they go through this list and they say, you know, one to seven, how intelligent should my ideal romantic partner be? How kind should they be? Blah, blah, blah. They do that uh, for a long-term mate. And then they also do that for their ideal short-term mate. Uh, and they do those in randomized order, so there aren't order effects. Uh, and then after that, we show them uh, a series of profiles of potential mates. Uh, and we tell them, you know, here's a person who's this intelligent, who's this kind, who's this attractive, uh, physically attractive. Uh, how attractive do you find this person overall? Uh, how attractive would you find them as a committed romantic partner? Uh, and how attractive would you find them as a committed short-term partner? And they just go through this for a series of profiles. And these are, are all text-based profiles, or, or are there photos? Yeah, so in this study, we use just text-based profiles. So it just has, you know, for example, physical attractiveness, and you know, it has a number between 1 and 7. Uh, and the reason why we did it this way, that's a little bit less realistic than a photo, right? So mm-hmm. that's a limitation. Uh, But what it did, it gave us us a lot of experimental control, right? Because we can generate exactly what these profiles are like. uh, And we can also, we can specifically generate them to be, to have specific features relative to people's preferences. So we can say, you know, we want, you know, this profile to be exactly this far away from the average preference. uh, And so we can manipulate how attractive these profiles should be overall. Okay. Now, before we get into the actual results, Tell me a little bit about what your hypothesis was. So what was the underlying um, sort of framework in, in which you were asking your question? What, what, what were you expecting to find? 
Sure. So uh, we actually were trying to pit a number of different hypotheses against each other in this paper. So, uh, we, you know, there's a lot of work on there about what people want ideally in a romantic partner. So people have been given these ideal preference questionnaires for decades around the world. And we basically know what people are going to say uh, when we give them one of these questionnaires. But and, what we don't and know... if I can stop you for a second, does sure. that serve as like validation then? That, that you ask some questions where you sort of know what they're going to give you to make mm. sure that the survey is working properly? That can be one good check, right? So, you know, if you give the survey and you get answers that differ uh, pretty widely from what people have found in the past, then you might get worried, right? Maybe okay. something is special about the sample or maybe something went wrong in the, in the design or something okay. like that. Um, okay, anyway, you can uh, go on so that. It, yeah, yeah. So, but, but people, you know, have been studying these preferences, but they would what they haven't been studying is what happens next, right? So you have these ideals, right? You have this perfect ideal made in your head, but you're never going to encounter that person. That person doesn't exist. So how do you take those ideals and go out and actually use them to see how attracted you are to the real people you encounter? Uh, and there's a bunch of different hypotheses about how people might do that. And so the purpose of this paper was to help us compare some of those different hypotheses. Uh, so we took all these uh, a handful of different models uh, of how people put all their preferences together uh, into a feeling of attraction, and we just compared them in these two samples to see, you know, what model explains the data the best. So it was um, a, a sort of a data analytic model, you mean? And yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So and what is it? So and and you were going to end up focusing on Euclidean. What does Euclidean mean to a to a non math person? Uh, that's that would make this a surprising or interesting result. What what, what is Euclidean? <laughs> Sure. So a Euclidean distance is is the kind of traditional distance. So anytime you think of how far something is away from you, you're thinking of a Euclidean distance. Uh, and and what the results showed is uh, the mind seems to be using this kind of distance, but it's not through you know a physical space. It's through a, a preference space. Uh, so you can imagine you know if you have let's say three preferences. There's only three things you want in the world, and a, a partner who's I don't know, intelligent, kind, and funny, right? Those are the three things you want. Uh, if those are the three things you want, then what you can do is you can put together, you can imagine a little cube, right? Uh, where one direction through that cube represents intelligence. So people who are on one end of that cube are really smart, and people who are on the other end of that cube are not so smart. Uh, and then another direction can be you know, humor. So people who are at the top of the cube are really funny, and people who are at the bottom of the cube are really boring. Uh, and then kindness, you know, maybe people at the front of the cube are really nice and people at the back of the cube are okay, really nice. So you got three dimensions there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you can think, you know, in this cube with these three trait dimensions, you can think where would you find your ideal partner, right? They're probably going to be, you know, up in that top corner where they're really smart and they're really funny and they're really nice. Uh, but you can also, every time you meet someone, right, you can just find where do they belong in the cube, right? Like that person was... They were pretty funny, they were pretty mean, they were pretty smart, but they were actually kind of mean. I don't like that person very much. They go in the back of the cube, right? Uh, and then the hypothesis is when you're going to compute how attracted you are to that person, what you do is you calculate the distance between where your ideal was in that cube and where that person was in the cube. And the longer that distance through that cube, the less attractive you find that person. Okay, so it is an essentially linear relationship, but it's not, um, it's in a multi factorial, multi-dimensional space. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. how many it variables are you looking at? 
Uh, so yeah, that was a three-dimensional example. In this particular study, uh, I think we had about 20 dimensions. 20 it's dimensions. a 20-dimensional cube. A 20, right. So this is where our ability to visualize it goes away. After three dimensions, the human mind can't really uh, oh, visualize yeah. <laughs> it easily, right? But it, yeah. if, it were, if there were such a thing as a, um, a cube with 20 different dimensions, um, you, and, and mathematicians, of course, can easily model this, and it's just a simple mm-hmm. distance then from where these people land and where your ideal is. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so what, is this, what do you think this tells you about the human mind then and how it evolved uh, re- regarding attraction? Because to me, it almost, it almost tells me that this is simpler than it seems. Would, am I interpreting this right? <laughs> uh, it depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> right? So, yeah, uh, I look at this and I think, yeah, this is a this is a pretty simple model uh, uh, of how attraction could work. But you show this to a lot of you know cognitive psychologists, and they think, you know, you're proposing that people calculate distances across twenty dimensions. That's so complicated. There's no way. Uh, so, uh, you know, it. In some ways, yeah, I think this is a, what makes this good is it is a relatively simple way. Uh, it's a it's basically slightly higher than high school level algebra that you're asking the mind to do. Uh, but what it does tell us is it gives us, to the extent that we believe that this is what the mind is really doing, uh, and the data suggests it's not a bad model, uh, it tells us how the mind is actually computing what we call mate value. Uh, so how it's actually estimating, you know, how good is this person to you as a mate? Uh, and that is a variable, that mate value variable, uh, we think is really relevant to a lot of really important decisions. It's relevant to who you decide to pursue as a mate. It's relevant to how you decide to regulate your relationship once you started it. So do I stay in this relationship or do I try and start another one? Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be relevant to how you assess yourself, right? So uh, am I at the mate value I need to be to be able to attract the kinds of partners that I want? Uh, and if not, how, what do I need to do to change it? Uh, and so we think this this kind of internal regulatory variable is going to be really important to understanding a lot of human psychology. Interesting. And I mean, I'm not particularly bothered by this notion that it has the mind doing algebra because it's all <laughs> automatic. I mean, if you, you ever, mm. um, you know, want to throw something and hit a moving target, you're essentially doing physics and you don't have to know physics in order that's sort of like an intuitive physics or a subconscious physics. Yeah. Um, and you can, with a little bit of practice, get really, really good at hitting moving targets. And you've never measured their velocity. <laughs> you've never computed the time of flight or any of that stuff. You just sort of, it's an intuitive math. Would you think I'm getting it right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, there's no supposition here that this is conscious calculation yeah. at all. Uh, this is all happening automatically. Automatically. Uh, but, you know, there are there are some simpler models that you could imagine, and, and some people are proponents of those simpler models. And So what are those alternative models? Well, so I think, you know, the classic assumption for a really long time uh, that just nobody thought to challenge was uh, a sort of additive model, right? So, which is a little bit simpler. And that one says you just take each trait that this potential mate offers and you add them all up, right? And the person who has more good things... Uh, and fewer bad things, they're the best partner. Uh, and that's, you know, very simple, right? There's no squaring or square roots or differences you mm-hmm. have to calculate. It's just the sum. Uh, and, you know, that's a that's a reasonable model of human attraction. And did you, did you test that model in this study? Yeah, so we tested uh, a, a sort of linear combination version of that model. So it's that plus a little bit of a twist. Uh, so what it says is, actually, no, you know what, we did test that directly. I'm <laughs> uh-huh. forgetting my own paper. So we tested that one directly, uh, and we also tested a twist on that one, where you uh, uh, you add everything up, but 
you also weight each trait by your preference. So uh, it's good if someone is intelligent, but if you prefer intelligence more, it's extra good, for example. Right. Yeah, I was going to um, ask, so you ask people those. to say which ones, which things is most important to them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and both of those uh, we, we found don't work quite as well as the Euclidean model. So, you know, they have an advantage in that they're simpler. So they're presumably easier for the brain to do, uh, but it just doesn't seem to be what people are doing. Okay. And I guess also built into this research method is the idea that you have to sort of believe people when they say what they're attracted to. So what, what's your comment on that? Like, what, do people really know themselves that well? Oh yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a big that's a big controversy in attraction research, uh, kind of bubbling up right now. Uh, so yeah, the way I do it, we just ask people for what they want, and we sort of take them at their word. We we trust that they know what they want in an ideal partner. But other people are more skeptical. They they think that people don't really know. Uh, and part of the justification for that is if you go out and you you do something like a speed dating study. Right, so you set people up in, in an actual speed dating environment. You get single people together. You let them talk for five minutes, and then afterwards they have to say, you know, who do you want to go on a date with again? Uh, and you you look at what they said they wanted before the speed dating uh, event, and then you look at who they actually chose. And there's surprisingly or disturbingly little correspondence. So it, it's hard to predict on the basis of these ideal preference questionnaires. Uh, who a person actually chooses in these speed dating events, according to some people at least. Uh, and so some people have taken that to mean that, yeah, people don't really know what they want. You can't take them at their word. Uh, so that's one interpretation. <laughs> but what, so what's your uh, but, response to that? Well, it, part of it is, you know, I think what this work shows is that attraction is multidimensional, right? So you can't, you can't look at choices one dimension at a time. So yeah, you know, if a person who says they want a really intelligent partner, maybe they didn't pick the most intelligent person at the speed dating event, but maybe they didn't pick that really intelligent person because they were also really mean and unfunny and unattractive, right? Uh, so if you look one dimension at a time, yeah, it looks like there's not a lot of correspondence. But when you look across all of these dimensions, there might be a lot more correspondence. Uh, and so, you know, it's an empirical question. Okay, so that that's an interesting part of this. What, what what would you do next then? So what's the next step to sort of keep going with your model and keep testing it and, and validating it? Great question. So, uh, you know, one relates to a question you asked earlier. Who, who are we sampling here? This is an American internet sample, which is, you know, slightly better than the standard psychology sample of American college students, but it's still not... College students in Psych 101. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's still not the most representative sample in the world. So we, we do want to push this, you know, to broader samples. And I am currently working on a paper where we've got uh, some cross-cultural evidence that relates uh, relates to these different models. Uh, so that's one direction. Uh, but another direction is, you know, best case scenario. So suppose, you know, you, this Euclidean hypothesis is correct. Uh, best case scenario, what this tells us is how we get from preference to attraction. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. a huge jump. Really excited about that. Really happy about that. But, you know, how then how do you get from attraction to choice, right? So then you can look around and you can say, you know, to me, that person's an eight, to me, that person's a nine, but how do you actually say, this is the person, you know, I'm going to pursue, this is the person I'm going to commit to. Uh, and so that's the next big direction. Yeah. And I noticed that you've also published work on, um, mate switching, right. Of, uh, of yeah, people yeah. who, uh, decide to leave one relationship and pursue another one. Um, and I, I, is your, would your hypothesis be that, um, in addition to whatever unsatisfying thing might be going on in the relationship, but there's also a little bit of a comparison of that Euclidean distance. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and we I mean we have a paper on on relationship satisfaction, in fact, where we show that yeah, part of what determines how satisfied you are in your relationship is how your partner compares on that Euclidean measure to other people uh, in the environment. So if your partner is a further Euclidean distance from your preference than everybody else is, uh, then yeah, you tend to be less satisfied with your relationship, which seems to be related to that mate switching, right? So if your mind detects that your partner, your current partner isn't as good as you could get if you went back on the market, then you get a little bit less satisfied, maybe it'll motivate you to go and mate switch. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Any other final thoughts on this or, or uh, future work you're happy about or alternative explanations? Anything else you wanna add? Um, I mean, I think, you know, this Euclidean stuff, <laughs> the Euclidean model has been uh, pretty successful so far. And, you know, we're, we're pretty excited about that. But there are, there's a huge space <laughs> of alternative models out there. So, you know, we're really just scratching the surface uh, uh, of this, this modeling space. And there are lots of, lots of other alternatives that we just haven't had a chance to test yet or that, you know, people haven't even come up with yet. So I, I think, you know, we've made a really good start here. Uh, but I think the most important thing is going to be, you know, galvanizing other people <laughs> to use these right. methods to test a lot of other different models. So we can get, you know, just that little bit better every time. Okay. Um, also, I, I did think of another question yeah, I wanted to ask yeah. you. So in, in your studies, uh, both this one and, and in uh, other ones you've done, uh, I'm sure it's very tempting and very obvious for people to consider just the regular heterosexual mm. case of a man attracted to a woman and a woman attracted to a man when you're doing these. But how do you counter in, um, you know, sort of sexual orientations that are minority mm. uh, in the population? Uh, it's a great question. And the answer, unfortunately, right now is we haven't. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of this work is motivated from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, and as I'm sure you know, the evolution of non-heterosexual mating is one of the biggest questions in evolutionary theory, mm -hmm. right? We don't know why it is humans have uh, exclusive homosexual mating orientations. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, without theory that can explain the evolution of same-sex mating, it's sort of hard to apply the same ideas, uh, you know, in a theoretically principled way, the same ideas from, you know, opposite-sex mating to same-sex mating. Uh, but that is, you know, we need more work in that area, right? I mean, if you asked me for my hunch, I would say all the same things apply. I would guess it's the right. exact same psychology and you'd get the exact same model fits. But, you know, I, as a scientist, right, we want a strong hypothesis going in uh, before yeah. we run the study. And, and we just don't have the theories necessary to generate them. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for stopping by. We look forward to uh, reading your future work. And uh, have a good week. This is another episode of This World of Humans. Thanks a lot, Professor Conroy Bean. Thanks so much for having me. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative currently supported by Vision Learning and the PSC CUNY Research Award Program at the City University of New York. Science educators, don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash TWOH.